We'll read this morning from the Hebrew prophets, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verses 1 to 7. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I give you a title, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Imagine that you are a servant in the stateroom of a king. You have entered the room quietly just to empty the trash can or bring the king a coffee. Someone else is in there, too, talking to the king. Nobody notices you. And whoever it is with the king just keeps on talking. Aren't you tempted to linger and eavesdrop just a little? Just think what you might learn. The ins and outs of conflicts coalitions, alliances, enmities, peace, war, stalemates, who's in charge, who's right, what's going to happen. Now imagine that the one talking to the king is God. In today's text, we overhear God talking to a king named Cyrus. We are in the room. Of course, we will hang around and eavesdrop. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Will we hear God's plans for the rise and fall of nations? Will we emerge knowing winners and losers? Will we finally know once and for all whose side God is on? We know this is God talking because of four special words. Thus says the Lord. Anytime you read these words in one of the prophetic books, you know the prophet is speaking not for himself, but for God. Usually God is speaking to the people of Israel, but in today's text, God is talking just to Cyrus. So let's make ourselves inconspicuous in the corner and keep listening. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, the first thing we learn is that Cyrus is of key importance. God has chosen him, anointed him. Being anointed by God puts you in a position of power. If you didn't know that already, you will know by the the end of the next few lines. Listen to this. Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So your right hand is your strong hand. This is Cyrus's strength. 
And God is adding his strength, God's strength, to Cyrus's own. Thus, super strengthened, Cyrus will be unstoppable. God will subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, breaking down every door and every gate, leveling mountains, cutting through barriers of bronze and iron, and even unearthing hidden treasures in Cyrus's path. What makes all this odd, though, or unexpected is that Cyrus is not an Israelite king. Cyrus is a Persian king. When did you ever hear the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling a Persian God's anointed? I'll tell you, never until right here, halfway through the prophetic book of Isaiah. What is going on? What is going on is the end of the exile of the Jews from what they called the promised land. The exile, a terrible tragedy in the history of the Jews, happened over a period of years, about 598 to 582 BCE, when the armies of Babylon destroyed Judah, the last holdout from the once great kingdom of Israel. When Judah fell, the Babylonians took most of Judah's citizens as captives to Babylon. If you have heard the psalmist mourning by the rivers of Babylon, weeping for Zion, you've heard a lament about the Babylonian captivity. What's going on is that in 539 BC, the great empire of Babylon fell to an invading army under a Persian king. And the next year, that king announced that all the Jewish captives in Babylon could return to their homeland. Cyrus was the king who released the Jews from exile and put them on a path to restoration. And for that, Cyrus shows up in the Hebrew Bible with the title of God's anointed. What's going on is a new idea that God is not just God for Israel, that God acts within the history of other nations, that a non-Israelite who never even heard of God can be with his own life carrying out God's plan. The implication of God's speech here is that individuals and even whole nations who do not know God are nevertheless in God's hands and part of God's purposes. That was a new expression of Israel's faith. It was also certainly a new idea for everyone outside of Israel, or it would have been had they known about it. But this is part of the new development. The other nations didn't have to know that they were in God's hands for it to be true. The nations who did not know God could keep on not knowing God, and yet God would still have power over their rulers and their lives. In time, God would reveal God's self. And then, as God so often says in the prophetic books, then you shall know that I am God. Then you shall know that I am God. We hear the words over and over in the prophets, and they are in our text today. 
All those powerful things God is going to do on Cyrus's behalf, leveling mountains, busting through gates, turning up treasure, God does them for this reason, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. All that mountain leveling and treasure turning is just a bigger, brighter, burning bush. It is God revealing God's self. Why? So that you may know. God reveals God's self to Cyrus because it's time for Cyrus to know God. And the revelation will extend to many nations so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is a big development in religious history. This is a moment at which all nations, all people may understand through revelation that they don't have to worry about whose God is strongest or cleverest or rightest, whose God is in charge, whose God will win the battle. It's not a competition between one nation's God and another. No one has to worry about whether they're praying to the right God because there's just the one. I am the Lord, and there is no other. How fortunate we are to be in the room to hear this conversation. And there's still more to hear. By the end of this chapter of Isaiah, God's speech will move from revelation to invitation. And we will not be the only ones to hear it. Having established that I am the Lord and there is no other, by the end of the chapter, God will urge all the nations to turn to me and be saved. The invitation will be, in the end, irresistible as God declares, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. What began in that room with God and Cyrus, we now recognize as the unfolding, ongoing revelation of God which happens in ways we cannot foresee and places we cannot predict. God will go on revealing God's self as God chooses, as God has done throughout history, whether in a burning bush, in an overwhelming display of force, or in the body of an infant in a manger, to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet, for all that we have heard and overheard, are we now any wiser about God's plans for which nations will rise and which will fall? Will we emerge from our inconspicuous corner knowing winners and losers? If you conceive of the cosmos as full of gods, each favoring one people or another, then you are free to picture a cosmos in which every tribe has a god on their side. But if there is only one god, whose side is the one god on? After overhearing this conversation between God and Cyrus, do we know? Actually, we do know something about this topic not from this conversation, but from other Hebrew prophets. 
A lot of what we know about God comes from the prophets, even if we don't seem to read them very much. Because Jesus read the prophets. And Jesus generously passes along his knowledge to us in the Gospels. And a very important lesson that Jesus brought straight from the Hebrew prophets to us is whose side God is on. God is on the side of the underdog, the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, the oppressed. But here's a problem. There is only one God, but there is not only one oppressed population. And because being oppressed rightly makes people angry and fearful, oppressed populations sometimes even oppress one another, struggling for power and striking out in violence against each other. When that happens, how do we know whose side God is on? All human beings take sides. And we all assume our own side is the righteous one. And yet we disagree with one another, even to the point of war. We come at matters both small and enormous from every side. With so many different convictions, we cannot possibly all be right. So the logical conclusion is we can possibly all be wrong. And that should keep us all humble. But humble is a good place to be. To be humble is to acknowledge that we cannot know everything or even much of anything that's really important, like how wars will end or how the world will end. But revelation is ongoing, and God will let us know what we need to know when we need to know it. Do you think God did not see us in the corner today? listening as God talked to Cyrus. What did we learn from that fortunate moment? We learned that to God every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. God invites us all from every side, and God will let us all know how to get where God is. To be humble is to make ourselves quiet in the corner, and keep listening. Amen.